Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Today on Brussels Sprouts, we are finally going to start talking about Afghanistan uh, and really what it means for transatlantic relations. We've been waiting to take this issue on, given how consumed we've all been with the news, how emotional it's been. Um, But it is an issue that we'll continue to tackle, um, not just today, but also in future episodes, trying to make sense of what this means for the transatlantic partnership. Clearly, there have been many voices in Europe that have been critical of the decision to withdraw, and especially the manner in which the United States carried out its withdrawal. Allies have emphasized that they weren't consulted properly beforehand, despite their clear interest and really the stakes for them um, in preserving stability in Afghanistan. And it's provoked now what many are calling a new crisis in transatlantic relations and re-heightened doubts about the reliability of the United States as an ally. Uh, There are renewed calls for European strategic autonomy. We can talk about if we wanna use that term. including through the creation of an EU rapid reaction military force. So there's a lot out there. This is just the first of a couple of attempts to try to make sense of all of this. And to do that, we have two fantastic guests. We're welcoming Dr. Ulrika Frank and Giovanna DeMaio. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Uh, Ulrika is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, She leads ECFR's Technology and European Power Initiative, and her areas of focus include German and European security and defense, the future of warfare, and the impact of new technologies such as drones and AI on geopolitics and warfare. And Giovanna is a non-resident fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution and a visiting fellow with George Washington's University's Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies. Her background is in international security, and her research focuses on Italian, domestic, and foreign policy, uh, including Italy's relations with the EU and the United States. So Again, two um, fantastic guests to help us get started in thinking through these implications for transatlantic relations. Um, I think I want to start maybe hearing from both of you kind of how you would summarize or synthesize the European reactions that you've seen to uh, the events that have unfolded in Afghanistan. Um, You know, there's obviously huge diversity in responses and reactions. And so for an American audience trying to make sense of what they're seeing to hear from you, I'm Ulrika, I was just reading some stuff on the Germany side, you know, where you have Armin Laschet, who's arguing things like we must strengthen Europe so that we never have to leave it up to the Americans was a Mm -hmm. quote. And then that contrasts with AKK, the German defense minister who was warning against efforts to split Europe from the US. So clearly even a diversity of views in Germany, but so maybe you can talk a little bit about Germany, feel free to go bigger. And then Giovanna too, if you wanna talk about the the Italian and the French reactions, but try to help us, this American audience make sense of of what the reaction has been. Sure, happy to to start on this. I mean, I think it's really hard to, to summarize the European reactions. And as you say, even just the German reactions in any meaningful way because they really were diverse. So I'm pretty sure I've seen opinion pieces that have 
talked about the end or at least the failure of the West, the end or the failure of the transatlantic relationship and uh, the end of NATO. Um, at the same time, you've got people, and I would maybe count myself among those that say, well, maybe that's a bit overblown. And um, what exactly is it that we're now deploring? Is it really, is it is it the withdrawal as such? Or is it the way in which it was done? Um, and, and I think there this, this is really a big question. So it seems to me that, you know, if you didn't think that NATO or the West or the transatlantic relationship was falling, say, at the beginning of August, when we knew that the US and therefore everyone else was withdrawing, I struggle to see why you would argue this today. Because if it really is just the fact that the, that the withdrawal was more chaotic than anyone would have wanted or expected, and that Kabul and, and Afghanistan fell to the Taliban more quickly than expected. And I think this is really important because every expert I heard and listened to basically said it would fall. It's just that it went more quickly. If that these are the only things um, um, that 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 kind of swayed your, your opinion, that seems to me not big enough to really make these, these big claims. But yeah, so we've had a whole kind of um, uh, range of reaction. I think a big important um, thing that happened is indeed this focus in Europe on the need for more European capabilities, which, I mean, to be honest, I, I support and think is very good because, you know, we've been talking about a lack of European capabilities, military capabilities for a long time. It does strike me that it is slightly odd to ask for more military capabilities after the Afghanistan withdrawal, because it's not as if, you know, the Europeans wanted to stay and couldn't because they didn't have the capabilities. They didn't want to stay either. So I, I keep saying like, okay, even if we had had an, an entry force as now being proposed or some kind of European army or anything like this, I don't think we would have done anything different or at least considerably different. We may have, you know, helped with the the, the Kabul airport a bit more, but I don't think it would have been significant. But nevertheless, I think so one lesson is definitely what you just quoted. I mean, Laschet, the CDU candidate saying um, a kind of push for more European capabilities, whether this will result in anything we, we, we can discuss. Um, and maybe just very briefly, because um, I'm, I'm also sitting in, in London, um, I think what, what, what's quite interesting is that it seems to me that it, it, it's basically in the UK where I heard the only real voices of Europeans saying, maybe we shouldn't have left at all. We should have stayed in Afghanistan. Maybe, you know, the Europeans or the UK should have stayed in Afghanistan. So, so, but I think these were, these were, these were only very few, but, but of, of the few that, that argued that, that the withdrawal as such was not a good idea. I think most of them were, were based in the UK, and of course, they are now um, particularly frustrated, which is understandable. Yeah. I have a counterpoint on what Ulrika just said about the um, willingness of Europeans to stay or not stay and their capabilities. Um, I actually read um, in uh, several uh, places that actually Italy, UK, and Turkey had some intention to, I mean, obviously this information leaked, but um, they had some intention to stay, um, but obviously they were lacking the capabilities and with informal conversations I had uh, with uh, officials,
off, basically. Um, it was as soon as they knew that the US was leaving, it was going to be impossible for them to hold without the opportunity to be supported by the US. And I think this crisis has actually put Europe in front of the mirror and look at its own capabilities. We, we know that France needed support from the US in the Sahel operation. The state of the German army, I think Ulrike can talk better of this uh, than me, um, if the state of readiness is absolutely insufficient. And um, I think we have a, a long way to go before getting to a point in which we can actually pursue this kind of operations uh, without the support of the US. But going back to the general discussion on what uh, has been the reaction in, uh, in Europe, I think, obviously, as you mentioned, it was very um, diverse, but I think there are a few general points that can be made. Of course, the images of the airliftings were um, absolutely heartbreaking and disappointing. Um, this reignited the debate on why uh, we were in Afghanistan before, uh, from in the first place, and obviously huge concerns about migration. Um, in, in general, um, the uh, feeling of being uh, not consulted during the EU-US uh, uh, summit in, uh, in July, not even like a word on how to withdraw from Afghanistan was uh, definitely um, not a great point for Europe that felt, as Natalie Tocci put it in a political article, that you know US did the cooking and we, the Europeans were left with um, the, the cleaning up uh, moment. And obviously with migration flows that uh, affect Europe in the first place in an election year, both for France and for Germany. Um, Italy was more balanced in its reaction. It was more like uh, reflecting on the mistakes, um, uh, going doubling down in supporting the Americans, supporting the withdrawal, honoring the victims, because Italy had a very a consistent um, engagement in Afghanistan. France was a little bit different because France had withdrawn in 2014 completely. And it was more of a I told you so moment in which you know we, we knew that um, uh, Afghanistan were not going to be stable. And uh, we withdrew uh, early on. Um, and, I'll, and I'll stop here. Sorry, just a very quick reaction um, uh, to what uh, Giovanna just said, if I may. So first of all, absolutely fascinating what you said about, did I hear this right, Italy, the UK, and Turkey? Because, you know, two out of these three countries aren't in the EU. So all of these reactions about, you know, EU forces um, is, is still particularly um, fascinating. And I, I think, yeah, you absolutely made a really important point about the kind of no coordination or even consultation between transatlantic or NATO allies. Um, and that, quite honestly, I, I, I couldn't get a good answer to why that happened because it strikes me that this was a very unnecessary mistake by the Biden administration to not you know, coordinate or yeah, consult uh, consultate um, with, with the allies on the ground sufficiently. And I'm still not entirely sure what um, happened there. And just the final point, because I think it's important to kind of um, complete the picture in terms of reaction. I think one important reaction, and I guess in many European countries, but in, I heard this in Germany in particular, is this very general question of, you know, do military interventions even work ever? I mean, I think there's a broad agreement pretty much anywhere in the Western world that nation building pretty much fails and doesn't work, but even military interventions more generally, and also, and again, important for the Germans, this whole idea of, 
of empowering foreign militaries so they can keep security in their countries themselves, because that's a concept that the Germans really like. Um, it's Ertüchtigung, so yeah, empowering. And this is something that we've tried in Afghanistan and are indeed trying in Mali in the Sahel. And so if this is if this failed so completely as it is in Afghanistan, there is a really kind of fundamental question of what are we even, even doing? And I think this may be one of the longer term um, consequences to which I'm sure we'll, we'll get in a sec. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, those interventions both were fabulous and there are so many directions to go in. And in fact, I kind of want to talk about consultations versus notifications only because I've been in that you know, consultations business for many, many years. <laughs> and it's a, it's a sometime thing, you know. But what I want to do, Ulrich, is, is to pick up on what you were saying about the long-term implications for what does this mean in terms of military interventions? What does this mean in terms of dealing with a crisis. Uh, there was a book written in the 1970s by David Halberstam, The Best and the Brightest, which really laid out um, how we tried to do that in South Vietnam and how it failed. And a lot of that parallels with what we experienced over the past 20 years. Um, and so it's, it's not like uh, people who, the, the civilian policymakers weren't aware over the past 20 years uh, because that, that uh, certainly what Halberstam and others said since Vietnam are still in everyone's minds about what works or what doesn't when it comes to using the military or when it comes to nation building or however you want to describe this phenomenon. But, but it will happen again. We will be faced with another failing state, if you will, or a situation where there is a move to want to intervene. Uh, and we're not, um, and, and I think that, just the feeling that, that at least here in the US we're coming away with in terms of how well things worked over the past 20 years, you know, we'll be faced with a dilemma. Do you jump in there and do something uh, or do you not? Uh, and so for you two, tell me how that long-term, um, that long-term implication sits with you and with your colleagues as you listen to Europeans talk about, you know, if the EU is gonna have the 50,000 person intervention force, you know, they're buying this problem. So, uh, so they need to have an answer to this too. So how does this feel to you all as the future decision makers? Um, what, what do we do the next time this comes around? Thank you, um, Jim. I, um, I think it is a very good point of like how the general feeling on uh, crisis and crisis management, and I'm not sure we will get to this 50,000 uh, unit that Borrell was uh, advocating for. And I think 50,000, is not really a large number if you think about it. I think it was more meant to think of a quick reaction force in case of emergency or like in case of you know separating uh, two fighting uh, factions. So I, I think in uh, more broadly, the military is a tool that uh, Europeans want to uh, acquire and to fortify more of as a deterrent could be, but it can also be um, in, in theaters that are more affecting European security. But I think Europe has a pretty broad concept of security, more of a holistic perspective on, on cyber, on crisis management, on patrolling the Mediterranean, um, and more broadly, like really what's Europe, I think Europe is facing the question of what does it want to do, where does it want to go, and we here we go back always to the differences in strategic priorities between different countries in Europe. I think the answer, um, that we're never going to have like one European foreign policy, one answer and everything, but I think 
think um, with the, it would be interesting to see with the strategic compass coming uh, pretty soon to see what kind of where EU wants to focus it on its uh, resources. And I believe a lot of them should be a support uh, to nation building that is not just you know with a pursuit with military means but like supports to institution support to uh, aid development that are actually the factors that trigger also the lack of which triggers migration um, and these are the areas in which the EU can actually make a difference because it's not really a military uh, power and I think this would be more coordination with NATO on these particular challenges that require more military intervention so I think in, in the last two in the last few years, we've had a number of, well, basically pretty much failed military interventions, right? I mean, we have Afghanistan now, which I think most people would call a failure, which was the kind of um, scenario where you do a military intervention and then stay in the country for a very long time and try to build something up and it didn't work. But we also had the kind of counter example of Libya, where, you know, you kind of try to get in and get out very quickly just to the military bit. And that also seems to be a failure. And then we had Iraq, where the intervention in the first place seems to have been a political um, mistake. So all of this doesn't doesn't look good, right? And I think what this does for the Europeans, but I guess it's pretty much the same in the US, is that there will be even less appetite for military interventions going forward. However, I would say that maybe that doesn't actually have such a big impact because it's not as if, you know, especially the Europeans ever wanted to do military interventions. I mean, you know, no one, no one in Europe runs around and says military interventions are a great idea. I mean, pretty much all that we did were all, always a reaction to, to something that really felt like we, we had to do it. Afghanistan after 9-11 um, and, and in Mali and the Sahel is very much a reaction to the 2015 um, terrorist attacks. So, so interestingly enough, I wonder whether this kind of reticence to do military op operations um, really will have such a big impact because you, you may still be pushed to do them even if you don't like to do them. However, as Giovanna just, just said, maybe the one kind of silver lining, the good thing that could come out, out of all of this is that maybe we, we will approach military interventions in a more kind of comprehensive way and, and try to, you know, not just focus on the military side, but then also on the, on the yeah, empowering and building up the, 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 the countries. But again, you know, this is something we've kind of tried in Afghanistan already and in Mali, and it, it seems to be failing. But I, I think this is something that we need to do better. And if, if we kind of learn the lessons from Afghanistan, and I think there are a few obvious here, and I'm sure many, many that aren't obvious to me, but if we learn those and can improve on that aspect, that would probably be, be a good outcome. Just to put one thing on the table and then, uh, and then back to uh, Andrea, uh, you know, another question we're gonna have to think about uh, is, is it also not a good thing if you're reticent about intervening? Oh, if absolutely. you are, yeah. you know, and that brings us Syria and the red line and, and all kinds of other things where, you know, we, we might've, we, maybe we should have intervened or maybe we should have intervened earlier uh, and, uh, and we didn't intervene at all. And this thing is continuing. I mean, there's so many, there's not a very, there's not a good playbook. <laughs> there's just not a good playbook, but that's something else we have to think about is it's not necessarily a good thing that we sit on our hands and say, sorry, we're not going to intervene in this particular situation because uh, we've been burned in the past and then something awful happens, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and, uh, so it's, th that's something else to think about, but Andrea, over to you. 
But Syria is actually a perfect addition to this list. Absolutely. Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, that these were actually really different um, interventions and somehow none of them and none of them were clearly a success, right? And so, yes, absolutely. It's not as if you can say, I mean, clearly intervening doesn't work, so we're not going to do it. Like, that's that's also often not a solution, yes. And, you know, on that, and sorry, Andrea, just a real quick point. You look at the Obama administration and President Obama and his people, many of whom were in power today, um, that of all administrations that are that's reluctant to use power and, and feel uncomfortable using power, during the eight years of Obama, we had Obama doubling down on the surge, you know, there in Afghanistan. He was talking to that, as he might say. Um, he did Libya, which has not turned out well at all. Um, and then, of course, Syria, as you just mentioned, and, and he came on as talking about a red line, which was so bellicose and yet didn't follow through on that. I mean, you know, watching uh, Obama and his administration wring their hands over these particular crises during those eight years where force was part of the package um, shows how, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy, no matter your political makeup or your philosophical bearing on the use of force, you will be confronted with these situations and finding the right course, if there ever is one, is going to be so difficult. But I think, sorry uh, to just cut Andrea, um, I, I believe also that all this crisis you, you describing more specifically Libya and Syria, you have a variety of regional actors that have been playing more or less openly and you know, like it's not that we just have military intervention as a type of intervention. And so to me, it's really interesting to see, yes, we're talking about the, dead, uh, the, the red line, but we also cannot forget uh, cutting the deal with the Russians on uh, not to use chemical weapons. And I think, you know, there are several pieces in, in, this, um, in these scenarios um, that um, probably military intervention I'm not sure what kind of contribution could have made, perhaps, you know, a peacekeeping force to avoid, um, you know, the um, harm of the, of the Syrian population, but like, it's really a matter of how you involve regional actors and how you're able to kind of deal with them in order to prevent what you, like, what you, what, in order to achieve your goals that I think the West in a way is rethinking and trying to see how much does it stand for its own values like really with all the populist and nationalist movements that have been rising since the 2008 financial crisis, I feel like Afghanistan has shaken the, um, the, the souls of Europeans and it's more specifically and say, okay, where do we really stand for? Are we really gonna let this happen? Okay, we don't wanna use military intervention or when would it be okay for us to use military intervention, but what are the tools that we have to, to prevent this if we want to stand up for our own standards in a moment in which we are competing with autocracies? And, and that's a really good point. Sorry, Andre, that's really No, good. no, you know, not at all. But throw into that that it, it, that when the Russians went into Crimea in 2014, maybe the signal they were getting from a by from a uh, Obama administration that was wringing his hands, or from Europeans who were trying to figure out there's got to be another way uh, than military intervention. Um, and then uh, the interpretation by Russia was, no one's going to hold me accountable for what I might do. And so they go into Crimea and into Ukraine and into Syria and, and do a lot of bullying. Uh, in between with the Balts and with uh, the, the Black Sea. So it's, it's you know, it is a very complicated picture. But it's uh, also hybrid warfare. Yeah. So like you cannot just counter hybrid with the military force. 
And like, I think Europe has done quite a bit on disinformation, uh, probably more than the United States. But then, yeah, we have a ton of activities that go with the military intervention covered or uncovered. And so, yes, it's a complicated pictures, but it, it just, uh, we cannot just tackle the big picture just with uh, thinking of European military intervention. I want to pick up on what you just said a, a second ago, Giovanna, about like how this really like, I, I don't know, can't remember the words you've used, but like shook the foundations or, you know, that Europeans are now going to kind of do this soul searching for the direction that Europe wants to go. I want to push on that a little bit because um, it's a theme that Ulrika brought up in her, some of her remarks too, about really how significant do we think this is in the transatlantic relationship? have another quote um, from, I think it was from Burrell, who said something like, sometimes there are events that catalyze history that create a breakthrough. And I think that Afghanistan is one of these cases. Do you think that there will be this soul searching and that Afghanistan will be some great catalyst for actions that Europeans have been talking about for a long time? Or is this something that it will quickly fade in the rear view mirror and we will have this podcast in five years time and nothing much will have changed and the transatlantic partners will you know, continue to be united in some cases and have shared values and other things and but in muddling through and others. I mean, I guess I want to know how much do you think this has shaken the foundations of Europe and is going to catalyze or accelerate some of the trends and dynamics that have that are already present in the relationship. Thank you, Andra. I, I think um, the um, Europe is a, a clumsy elephant, so it's still very slow in reacting in reacting to many things. I think this year Europe was quite <laughs> the one thing that um, was particularly significant was the European recovery facility on the on the economy. Uh, so it, you know, Europe was um, very reactive on that, but in foreign policy, uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think this is gonna be, this is gonna produce immediate change. I believe um, that um, we've seen pretty horrible things happen in the past few years, including migration flaws that have been, we've seen death in the Mediterranean every other day in the summer, and nothing has shaken um, the European structure on, uh, on asylum, maybe a little bit, but it took a few years since 2015 to actually get somewhere. Uh, so I do not think this is going to produce immediate change, but I do think that um, this accelerates the trend that has been going on since the Trump years, even before about how uh, we think about transatlantic relations and how uh, we imagine the partnership with the US. And I do not think that Afghanistan means that the US is not ready to defend Europe. I absolutely uh, don't think so. Uh, but I do think that the US is not gonna be involved as it used to be. We don't, like, I think we lost a little bit of the compass that obviously it's the comparison with post-World War II moments. We had some shared values and then the same values have not been boosted so much after the collapse of the Soviet Union and then with the war, the war on terror. So I think, you know, I imagine transatlantic relations developing on a more of less 
but more pragmatic uh, items in the future that can be counterterrorism operations, but even like um, trying to be creative on defense, like new military tools, artificial intelligence that do not require physical, like really uh, uh, men and women to go um, to combat, uh, but also again, through more diplomacy, more aid and more, uh, and even dealing with autocracies that we don't like uh, to actually be able to stabilize um, areas that are of interest and are uh, threats for security. Hmm. Yeah, this has not shaken the foundations of Europe or of the transatlantic relationships. I absolutely don't believe that. I also don't think that it's going to be this big moment of, of soul searching. Um, if I were to adopt the very cynical position, I would say that the EU, and I really mean kind of Brussels, as in the EU institutions and people such as Burrell, kind of see the current outcry of many Europeans over yeah, European defense capabilities as an opportunity to, to build up European defense capabilities, which is something many have, have tried and wanted to do for a long time. So that's kind of gives gives this idea further momentum. Um, but but yeah, it's it's being used in, in a certain way. Um, I think there are a few realizations in Europe that came on the back of the Afghanistan withdrawal. And and um, as was just said, it's it's also more about trend lines rather than about completely this kind of new wake-up call. But I think what Europe saw in Afghanistan is that the US and the US military isn't all powerful. Um, and, you know, that may not be exactly a surprise, but still, you know, this was this moment where you really see like even the US military can kind of um, um, be, be defeated. Um, we also realized that the transatlantic partnership is not quite as strong as we were hoping under President Biden. And I think this is why I emphasize so much this point about kind of coordination or, or um, just that communication um, uh, during the withdrawal, because it really felt like, huh, if even Biden isn't doing this, like that's, that's a bad sign. Um, and yeah, Europeans, many Europeans, and I wonder how long this is going to last, but many Europeans really feel that maybe, yeah, Europe, be it the EU or the, the nation state, need a few more capabilities as the US will not always be there. But these are trend lines, these are realizations that kind of emerged already under, under Trump and for, for many of, of them also even, even before that. But I, I, I honestly believe that this whole kind of soul searching and, and foundations of Europe are being shaken um, narrative is, is exaggerated. Do you think, I mean, I want to go back to the kind of European capabilities because one, I don't, I hesitate to use the term silver lining, but, you know, opportunity that it does create is, you know, Jim and I, and I think we've all talked about, Ulrika, you were, we've all been talking about the importance of Europe developing more of its own capabilities and for the United States that is increasingly focused on China, but also with the potential of you know, two adversaries, China and Russia at the same time, the United States is going to need Europe that's more capable. So how much of a catalyst do you think this will be? Obviously, there's lots of leaders in the EU and the French are using this as an opportunity to push the agenda for greater European autonomy. Do you think that, you know, how optimistic are you that there will be any progress on that front? And then I answer that. And then I, my second question, and Ulrika, I know this is a point you've made on Twitter too, is about Europeans' political will to use the tools if they build them. But let, I wanna talk first about the, do you think 
how optimistic are you that we'll actually see any progress towards more capabilities? I think we will see a bit of progress, but it is step by step. And it is, in fact, also a continuation of what we've been seeing since roughly 2014. I mean, for Europe, there really was this, this, this kind of uh, triple shock of the annexation of Crimea by Russia, the election of Donald Trump and Brexit. And, and these three elements did push the EU to do more on defense. And we uh, created all these great acronyms of the EDF, the European Defense Fund, and PESCO, the Permanent Structural Corporation. And I really do believe that there has been some advances being made. Now, you know, this isn't yet the answer, but it's definitely a step. And I think this is what we're currently seeing is going to feed into that. Um, I would be surprised if we're now going to have an absolute step change. I mean, it is true. I have already been in, in EU, again, Brussels discussions, where, where people said, you know, an entry, initial entry force isn't enough. We need, you know, tens of thousands of, of soldiers to be able to carry out um, operations after the first entry. So there's definitely a lot of ambition, but there has always been a lot of ambitions. There have already been proposals for like 60,000 strong European forces, um, a very long time ago. And we've had these shocks. We've had Kosovo and Yugoslavia. We've had, again, the annexation of Crimea, the, the Ukraine war. We had, we had a lot of kind of situations where people said, I mean, that really must now be the impetus for Europeans to do more. And they were a bit, but but not, you know, completely and and from one day to another. So yeah, my prediction would be further further development in this direction but not the step change that in a short period, we're gonna see um, considerable uh, change. Giovanna, you can jump in on that too, but let me layer in one more thing, which was, I think we saw recently then NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg warning against the development of a EU uh, rapid reaction force that would duplicate allied operations. You know, for so long, we're, we've all been pushing and hoping for greater coordination, cooperation between the EU and NATO. Is there any risk that this, the creation or this big drive to put, create a rapid entry force could actually cause friction between the two institutions? Or do you feel good and, and fairly confident that if the EU moves out in that direction, that it would be very carefully done to avoid duplication um, and would be complementary rather than redundant with what NATO is doing. Either of you can feel, feel free to jump in on that one. It's just that dynamic with NATO, you know. So yeah, yeah I, I understand what you're saying. I will yeah. just. Uh, yeah. um, I, a, the tricky dynamic. So I've been reading many, many studies on this because I'm working, I'm currently working on a paper on actually EU-NATO cooperation and coordination and interoperability. And to me, and everywhere I've read that like duplication is not a big deal, really. Like even if we happen to duplicate our forces, it's not gonna be um, you know, as extended as NATO is or as powerful, or like a little bit of duplication should be is actually like you guys have it in the US, like with the Pentagon and the different agencies, there is some level of duplication, obviously, because all the threats are intertwined. And um, it's, a, it's something that comes with more capabilities. And to me, it 
um, fascinating to see how um, NATO is uh, worried about potentially more European forces when 21 member states of NATO are also members of the EU and everything, every capability that gets developed in the EU is actually in very strong coordination with NATO through the European Defense Agency that makes sure that every project is actually interoperable with the gear and everything else that um, gets um, with NATO, between NATO allies. So your, uh, the US uh, car uh, plane or craft can actually be, get refueled in Italy, in France and everything else. So everything is very strongly coordinated on the hardware level. On the strategic level, um, we, we are always back to the big question on political cooperation, political coordination, who, we, who agrees or who doesn't. And the past few operations have always been a of the willing under the leadership of UN or NATO. So like it's hard to, to see um, a coherent response by one or the other organization. I think if anything, Afghanistan emphasizes that Europe European Union and NATO should be coordinating more in the tasks that they are more comfortable with and also avoid that Sahel or Iraq becomes another Afghanistan without this kind of coordination in which you know the military capability can leave out to a strong presence that can also support institution capacity building. I, I agree very much on the NATO EU point. Um, I've, I mean I've heard these claims about concerns about duplications and competitions between the EU and NATO many times, but quite honestly, um, it's a single set of forces. Anything the EU does to strengthen its military capabilities will benefit the, the European pillar of NATO. Um, I, I just don't see it and I have, haven't met anyone who could really explain to me what the big concern would be. And generally NATO, great, Jim can make that argument because genuinely, generally NATO um, officials are also relatively relaxed about this and usually say, no, it's great if the Europeans do something. I mean, it depends a little bit, but, but just very briefly because Andrea, you, you mentioned this earlier and we haven't really answered this, this question of, um, well, would the Europeans have used capabilities if they had had it? Um, and, and, and indeed, I, I, I ran a Twitter poll on this question, like if we had had such an, an entry force, initial entry force or European army or whatever, um, would Europe and the EU have, have used them in Afghanistan? And I also wrote an ECFR um, paper on, on um, the similar question. And the, the point I'm trying to make here with this is basically to say, the problem with Afghanistan for, from the European point of view wasn't primarily one of capabilities. It's not that you know, the Afghanistan operation was ended by the US and a withdrawal was done by the US and we wanted to stay longer or wanted to, um, to do the evacuation differently. I, I hear Giovanna on, on kind of Italy, Turkey and the UK, but, but like, very broadly speaking, the Europeans wanted to leave as well. And I think this makes sense. And so far as they primarily went into this with the, UK, with the US and for the US after 9-11. So I personally don't think that there would have been a point in staying, but they also didn't want to do it. So, so what I'm saying is that we could have had all the European armies in the world at this point. I just don't believe that the EU or anyone else would have used them. So that's the first point on Afghanistan. And the second point kind of baked into this is that, is that what I kind of want to bring across is that for Europe, most of the time, even though, again, I'm 
absolutely, I absolutely agree that we don't have enough capabilities. Often the problem for Europe and the European Union when it comes to doing something is, is the problem is one of unity and one of willingness to do something because there are these famous EU battle groups and they are, aren't perfect and there are issues with them, but you know we've had them um, for, for many years since 2007, we've never used them. And the main reason why we've never used them is because the Europeans couldn't decide, agree um, on using them. So, so from the EU, again, the kind of Brussels side of things, I would like them to tackle more the issue of, of willingness to um, act in unity. And I would actually like the member states, the, the nations do, to do more on the capability side of things. But that's kind of a, a preference of mine here. You know that's a, a wonderful discussion, and I and I think uh, I think in terms of that political will, that's always been the problem: is political will not just to use forces, but political will to put money into developing the forces to begin with. And in terms of that unity of for the EU to actually use a force, I think that can be, uh, you know, if you do a coalition of the willing within the EU, that would, those guys agree to go, you know, a subset of the EU, that that would be easier to do because NATO has the same problems in terms of unity. We can't send the NRF unless it's under consensus. So that's why so many times it's a coalition of the willing. US, UK, France, Germany going off to do something. That's how Libya started, if you remember. Um, so that political will is always a big deal. I, I, I'll, I will tell, tell you that for, I am in your camp, both of you guys and Andrea, I'm sure, um, that uh, you know the uh, a rising tide raises all boats. So an improvement in uh, European capabilities that come from EU-related things is good. But I thought I'd give you a little bit of, I'd give you a little bit of background from my experience uh, with this uh, duplication. The original mantra was no unnecessary duplication. So they weren't ruling out duplication. It was no unnecessary duplication. And the whole thing erupted back in the 2000, 2001, maybe 1999, uh, where the EU wanted to create its own shape. They wanted to create their own headquarters. And so everyone went crazy saying, you're duplicating shape. And if you duplicate shape and we have a bifurcated chain of command uh, and you've pulled a lot of good planners and good folks out of shape and you're putting them in, in Brussels instead, you know, they were gonna build this headquarters in Tiburon. I mean, it was a huge deal back then. That's where duplication can, became the, the, the big thing. And since then, it's morphed away from duplicating a headquarters into this thing about, and then the unnecessary bit was dropped. And so now it's just duplication. And you're right, that just, that's just, that's not a big deal. The only thing I would, I would say that causes people concern, and, and I have railed about this for many years, is whether it's battle groups or whether it is uh, the UK's, uh, you know, they've got their, uh, their uh, rapid reaction force too, the Jeff. You know, there's a lot of these little forces around, whether it's under the EU or NATO or a group of nations doing it, um, where they're going to have uh, forces at a higher degree of readiness and with special capabilities and that kind of thing. The problem comes when the nations themselves don't increase the size of their forces. So they're double or tripling or triple hatting a, a small group of forces. And mm. so if, if so instead of nation of forces, the number of forces getting bigger, it's staying the same, if not shrinking, but their duties are becoming heavier and heavier, and they're being pulled in a number of directions. The EU wants them to be a rapid reaction force. NATO wants them to be a rapid reaction force. They're going to be part of the Jeff. You know, so suddenly they've got all these masters who want them to be responsible to them 
to react quickly to something. And it's the same small group. So, so, so it kind of is self-defeating and it would be better if nations broaden the number of forces so that you don't have one little unit that's triple hatted. And the final point on that is that the fear is that uh, as defense budgets are, particularly before 2014, as defense budgets were so small that um, if, if, and this is the NATO headquarters view, if these nations, these allies with small defense budgets begin to carve off bits from that budget to go to do EU things, then there's less available for that nation to meet NATO force goals. So pretty soon for an ally that's also an EU member and they're keeping their budget, their defense budget small, there's two pulls on that very small budget, one for the EU and one for NATO. And if the EU pull is to do something that NATO doesn't care so much about, then that's less money that will meet NATO. So that's kind of where that thinking is. But I firmly believe, and I'll get off my soapbox, but I firmly believe we can work around that because at the end of the day, we want Europe to be able to stand on its own, to have a capable and ready force that can go off and do things. Uh, the US should no longer get away with this, you know, saying we want you guys to do more. And then when you start doing more, we start throwing rocks at you. So, I mean, it's, you know, we've <laughs> yeah. got to work that out. Can I make two quick points? Yes. Um, thank you for for bringing bringing up like the the U.S. the NATO perspective. But um, I do think, as Ulrike was saying, um, is a single set of force. So right. if the criteria for readiness are the same between the U.S. The, the NATO base and the European, you actually have like increased readiness. And I agree with you. Defense spending is small. Uh, troops, the number of troops can be expanded, but also the number of resources that armies have can be definitely expanded. But I, I just want to stress the fact that it's just the same forces that can be actually well, better equipped or better trained to pursue, to, to perform the, their duties under NATO flag or European flag, as it usually happens. Like in many operations, some days they carry a Europe flag and European right. Union flag, and another one, they the, the NATO one. And as far as the divergence in terms of objective, um, I think the elephant in the room is China. Um, and like if uh, NATO will, and I, I, I actually doubt that there will be a concern for European security that is not also a NATO concern on security. It might be not a US priority or like NATO generally speaking, but I do think given the reluctancy that Ulrike already mentioned on military intervention, I doubt that we will get to a point in which Europeans want to do a crazy operation that where NATO has no uh, interest in. I think we are always talking about the same stabilization of North Africa region or like a migration countering, illegal immigration, um, terror, a counter-terrorism operation. I don't think there's much more than that. And I don't think NATO may disagree on that. It would be quite awkward. Okay, we're going long on time. Um, so I'm gonna have one final question. And I mean, again, this is, I think, just you know, an early attempt for us all as a transatlantic community to kind of make sense of what has happened and figure out where we go from here. And I wanna ask you both kind of what you think we as a transatlantic community need to think through now together on the back of Afghanistan 
you know, clearly there are challenges in the transatlantic relationship. And I think, unfortunately, you know, we all had high hopes for what President Biden would mean for the restoration and kind of repairing the damage in the transatlantic relationship. A lot of that early progress that he made after the summits and other things feels like in many ways it's been undone. Um, but as a, as a transatlantic community, as we come together to think about what Afghanistan means, you know, whether it's the you know, new challenges, whether it's CT or security and defense or the credibility of liberal democracies or, you know, what it will mean for China and Russia filling in the void. I mean, I feel like there's a number of implications that we're going to be grappling with for a while. I, I think that that thinking needs to be done together, right? So we've talked about lack of consultation now is a time for the transatlantic community to come through and maybe start thinking through and prioritizing these challenges together. So, and, and I, I know I'm just kind of putting you on the spot with this question, but what are those areas where you think we as a transatlantic community need to focus our attention and prioritize kind of on the back of Afghanistan? What, what is it as a community we need to be thinking through? Mm. I'd pick uh, three questions that we need to address and I'll go from kind of small to big. The first question really is this, how do we work better together? The consultation element, because this, and this, I mean, maybe here I'm naive, but it strikes me as comparatively easy. Again, this seemed to have been an unforced mistake in Afghanistan. So more consultation and, and work put together better, but that's absolutely crucial. So that would be my first one. The second point would be how to, better empower militaries and armed forces elsewhere. Because this seems to be something that, that we believe is quite important in a number of countries that we want to stabilize. And that seems to have failed massively in Afghanistan. And I'm not quite sure how it's going in Mali, but I think this is something that we need to, need to address. Like what did we do wrong in Afghanistan that the Afghan national um, army um, collapsed so, so quickly? And then the third, the big question is how to address the rise of China as both the transatlantic alliance and as NATO. And of course, this work has started and all of us, I'm sure, are sitting in conferences and meetings and discussions on exactly that. But, but that's going to be the big topic. And in a way, and, and this is very much the kind of Biden narrative, the fact that now the US and the West isn't in, in Afghanistan anymore and isn't busy kind of keeping that up, um, maybe that has freed up some yeah, some thinking space um, for these bigger geopolitical um, challenges. Thank you. Um, I agree with Ulrike, and I also want to stress that now between the US and Europe, there is still a travel ban. Europeans are not admitted in the United States. So this is also quite telling about the state of transatlantic uh, relations. Um, but I, uh, on the point that Ulrike uh, just made, I want to add one small thing, which is um, technological cooperation. I think we have in this hybrid domain in which we are completely vulnerable to several threats at the same time. I think, um, and this ties up with uh, the strategic autonomy and the increasing European defense capability. I think we should establish a secure space, the transatlantic space as a secure space for our defense cooperation that also uh, securitizing the supply chain and uh, being less vulnerable to malaria 
divine powers uh, to uh, attack and take advantage of um, crisis situation like the pandemic has been for uh, for in actually being a community through more consultation tool, but also like really having um, a, a reliable space where we can uh, have a reliable supply chain, reliable technological cooperation and develop more capabilities that can actually help both Europe and the US to counter China and Russia. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. I know we're all, you know, grappling with these issues, working our way through these issues. And that's the point of the podcast, right? To do it with smart people who are thinking about issues and exchange ideas and views. And so we we really appreciate you both taking the time to do this and looking forward to kind of checking in again to see, you know, where we are um, and where, where what the directions that we're, that we're all working together and in some cases, you know, where there may be new divergences. But looking forward to checking in with you again to see um, how, how this starts to shape up. So thank you both um, and you. looking forward to talking with you both again.